Welcome back to the Darwinian Times Survival of the Nimblest, a podcast by Ularity. I'm Mary Hanula, the Director of Marketing, and I'm so happy you're here. This podcast is the intersection of marketing and tech, bringing you exclusive insights and conversations with some of the world's most revolutionary leaders. We talk all things automation, innovation, and even lifestyle. We're big on balancing brilliance and also being authentic. I'm guessing if you're here, then you're probably on the same wavelength too. So sit back, relax, and get inspired. Talk soon. Today, we could not be more excited. We have Azim Saju on the podcast for Darwinian Times, Survival of the Nimblest. He is the CEO and president of HDG Management Group. So that is developers and managers of portfolio franchises, franchise hotels throughout Florida. Today, we're going to be talking about kind of how he got there, what leadership is like, how it was during COVID-19, everything in between. We have some great stuff coming your way. And not only are you the president and CEO, but you are so involved within the franchising community. Really, take us from, take us from the start. How exactly did you get involved? with all of this. Yeah, so there's several chapters to the story that is Azim um, and HDG Hotels. And I'll start with the first chapter, which was uh, my dad had a farm in East Africa and uh, the farm got nationalized as good fortune would have it, which I think is part of being nimble and part of being part of a leader is several months prior to the nationalization, a person's car broke down near the farm. Uh, my dad helped him. It turned out that that individual was the chief of police of Chicago. Uh, this this was the early 70s and you know, told my dad, look, if you ever need anything, give me a call. When the farm got nationalized, uh, my dad called him and uh, he was able to get us a visitor's visa to come to the United States of America. And that was Another lesson of early lesson of leadership um, that I learned from my dad and have continued to learn from him is the importance of relationships and givers gain. Um, When you give, you're going to get, and it's going to be in very different ways. And relationships, especially in the U.S. and as we've developed our business in the U.S., really matter. Uh, Do you think, uh, to your point, Zim, on give and get, do you feel like in today's environment with social media and just a new generation, the relationship skills of giving back to people for expecting nothing needs to be relearned? Or do you see that with uh, the younger generation that it's still uh, a common practice? So what, what I see in terms of whether giving needs to be relearned um, and the extent to which it needs to be relearned as it relates to the younger generation is there's definitely a shift towards more the desire for more immediate gratification and a more tangible return. That being said, I just think as Americans, it's part of the American spirit to be friendly and welcoming. and, And it just comes naturally after a while to all of us who have resided in the US for a period of time. And I don't see that going away as it relates to the United States. Um, prior to COVID, I, I traveled to uh, Shenyang in Beijing, China. Beautiful country, beautiful people. 
But there's definitely a difference in terms of the warmth of the United States, even if you go through an airport and or a city and you don't know anybody and the welcoming warmth of the US versus I think foreign countries. And I don't think that's gonna go away. Yeah, interesting. Many times you go to an airport and you're on a layover or you're running late, the plane is running late and you're sitting at the bar, maybe having a slice of pizza or a beer or a martini, whatever your fancy is and someone's right next to you and you chat it up. I don't know how, that's probably happened to me maybe 50 times, um, but I never really assimilated that to just the kind of the US warmth. So that's kind of an interesting point. Absolutely. You know, so um, you believe obviously in the warmth, generosity and giving back nature of the American population. In hospitality, that is certainly something that you're offering to your guests and just that's the whole spirit of your business. Tell us a little bit about the early days of sort of how you got started in the, in the business and sort of uh, how scrappy you had to be to kind of how you weathered the storm. I'm sure that's happened a few times, correct? Absolutely. So my family, the most recent COVID crisis, I think was the fifth economic downturn um, that we have experienced uh, living in the United States. Uh, when we came here in the 70s, uh, we went through the gas crisis, uh, high interest rates. My parents, like a lot of immigrant success stories, you know, took on, my mom was a seamstress, my dad worked at a pizza place. Uh, they leased a little store in Long Island where they sold African garments. We're able to settle in that community and understand that in the US, you know, we're, we're a society that's still very merit-based, where if you work, if you have a product that's differentiated, if you build relationships within the community in which you do business by supporting some of the local causes, uh, you know, your business model over time, in spite of the cyclical nature of our economy, is going to flourish. And we benefited from that. The challenge was in Long Island was the weather was not like what they were used to. And we took our first vacation about six years later, came down to Florida. And, you know, my parents in February leaving New York and coming to Orlando, it was just they wanted to move here. And my mom read an article in the Reader's Digest about hotels. We found a hotel. Uh, they found a hotel in Ocala, Florida, which allowed them to purchase the hotel via lease. And the lease had a purchase option, which allowed them basically to get a hotel without any credit. And the purchase option included the seller holding a second mortgage. So when, when, when the option triggered, um, they were able to get a hotel without any credit and at 100% leverage. But again, it was a tough time in the US in the early 80s. And in Florida, it was a tough time too at the time. But as the economy began to recover, we began to see the strength of the American consumer in terms of travel and demand. And what they also began to understand is the vital role of franchising and franchise business models in the United States. They purchased what was then an Econolodge. And what it allowed them to do as franchisees is to have a national brand with a national reputation and a national reservation system and marketing system, but be entrepreneurs and run a street corner business. It in turn allowed them to, as they established their track record in the business to get financing at reasonable terms because they were franchised. It improved their likelihood of success. The franchisor also had conventions and meetings and 
they began to network with other people in the industry, which also continued to underscore the point to them and my family that in the U.S., in the United States, relationships really, really, really matter with your lender, with your franchisor, with your community. And there's a direct correlation between how you conduct yourself in those relationships and your success. My brother and I went off to school. Uh, we came in 93, our business was hit by a no-name storm um, that caused significant damage. And there was insurance issues as it related to you know, the, the repair of that damage to the hotel. We came back and engaged in an extensive rebuilding process of that hotel which took us to 2001. And again, we went through the Gulf War, um, went through a tough economic period, but again, the US came back. And there were lessons for us, especially as it related to that time in terms of beginning to understand the resilience of the American people and the U United States economy. Uh, we went through that stretch. And then as happens with a lot of immigrant families, the second generation comes with a bigger vision, right? They, 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 they no longer oftentimes wanna be single unit operators. And we wanted to be multi-unit operators. We wanted to be developers. We reasonably understood the game of borrowing money and leverage and, you know, in order to grow your portfolio. And we went on from 2004 up to and including September of 08, we built four, new build hotels. Are they within the same, the same brand or different brands? Different brands, all franchised. Um, and that was a big jump for us as a family business to having never built a hotel before to be hotel developers and building and developing hotels in smaller markets. Um, and we were able to get leverage at that time. But what happened in 08 was, you know, the Great Recession hit and we had assets that were underwater, meaning the mortgage was, they were worth less than their mortgage. So did you, uh, Azim, develop these for those four years right in time for the financial crisis and then it hit or did it sort of happen during the build process? Uh, the last hotel opened the day the markets crashed. Wow. So our timing was just, you know, spot on. Adam, you planned it out really well. So one of the things you told Mary and I um, was you have some ethical business principles that you've always operated in, especially in times of despair. Can you tell us a little bit about what you really believe in, sort of the, the beliefs that you believe, whether business is good, whether business is bad, especially in downtrodden years, kind of the core principles you, you like to believe in, your family likes to believe in, and how you treat your suppliers, your customers, et cetera. Absolutely. So some of the core principles that allowed us to survive the Great Recession, and frankly, have allowed us, I think, are tried, tested, and true in the United States, um, if you're going to be successful, uh, in no particular order. Uh, one, I think you have to love your business and your model more than you think it might love you back financially. You have to really love it. And at times that love is going to hurt, i.e. a downturn, the Great Recession, i.e. what we're going through or recovering from from COVID. It's going to hurt, but you have to love it. Uh, we also believed that the key to our success 
regardless of the economic circumstances, were our people. And what we began to do is we communicated to our lenders and our lenders were smart. They knew that these assets were underwater. Um, our partners, we had a few friends and family partners. They were smart too to know they were underwater. What we did was we began to communicate with them and become very disciplined in the communication. And the communication was you know, financial communication, i.e. the income statements, the balance sheets, an overview of the hotel's performance and doing that every month. So there was no gaps and there was full disclosure and full transparency. What is that? Is that common for operators to share that monthly or do you feel it's, uh, it really varies based on who's in, who's in control of that particular portfolio? I think it varies. And sometimes I think operators are scared to share too much. But when you have a lender involved or an equity partner involved, especially when you have a lender involved who's lent you 50, 60, 70, 80% of your cost, your entry cost, I think you have to put your cards on the table and assume good faith on the other side. Um, and, and, and when you do that and have a plan for that asset that includes taking care of your product, and your people, I think more times than not, in our instance, we were fortunate all times. The lenders were very receptive to that. Our partners were very receptive to that. Now, were there conversations that were intense? Absolutely. But ultimately, you know, when they felt that we were the best custodians for that asset, um, because we didn't wanna just indiscriminately cut our people. We didn't want to have a product that didn't give our guests or our customers value back for the dollars they were spending with us. And we had a plan to execute on that. And the execution was going to be, you know, cards on the table with full financial disclosure. We also felt that we needed to take a haircut first, meaning if we were going to distribute from the hotel, if we were going to inordinately pay ourselves from that hotel, then how could we ask our lenders to work with us? And similarly with our vendors, we viewed them as partners, our key vendors, talked to them about improved credit terms and tried to find areas of common ground where we could continue to build a win-win relationship with them. Um, and also communicate with them. Um, because at that point in a down economy, just like we, a lot of us experience this time, you're juggling payables. How did it? How did that fare for you as the uh, economy started to pick up and you started to recover from the market? Started to recover from the crisis. Did the lenders remember? They absolutely did, and it fared incredibly well for us because we had built a brand, we had built a reputation that if you do business with the Saju Brothers or HDG Hotels, you know they were gonna face their obligations. You know, we were raised from a very young age where if you borrow money and my, my parents have been beneficiaries of the United States banking system and leverage system, you got to pay it back. Negotiate the terms, but you have to pay it back, period. And you don't hide from your lenders. Um, and for that matter, the franchisors and your, your, your key stakeholders, you, 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 you put it 
you know, put your plan, put your what you're going through out on the table. And it worked for us very well. Like I said, it, we developed a brand. People felt they could trust us as we were coming out of that. And our investment pool of investors grew because people felt that, hey, I can trust these guys with my livelihood. I want to invest with them. I want to invest with HDG. Our reputation within the industry grew because we survived and shepherded these assets through what was in some instances a very strong recovery. Um, we developed loyalty amongst our customer base because they knew if they rented a room from any one of our hotels, you know, the room was gonna be clean. There was gonna be preventive maintenance done on the room. Um, you know, the air conditioned units were gonna be cleaned. The carpets were gonna be shampooed. All the stuff that's necessary to deliver value back to our guests, they were gonna consistently experience. And those people who were traveling locally in the area valued that. And as things came back and demand came back, you know, we were able to drive rate. We also used that opportunity to get even more engaged uh, organizations like the IFA, uh, our franchisee advisory councils, and play a leadership role there. And what that allowed us to do was network with our peers and exchange best practices. There's always someone out there that has an answer or has been there, done that as to a challenge that you're facing. Um, these organizations also provide a tremendous amount of advocacy in our industry, which is priceless and invaluable to us. Um, and then they offer educational classes that bounce ideas on brand initiatives off of us. And that level of increased engagement and, and placing an increased value and premium on relationships uh, as we came out of the downturn also proved invaluable to us. We were able to navigate the ecosystem of the franchisor a lot better than our peers because we, we invested the time in doing that. And that's been valuable, as I said. You know, and everything you're saying too, the fact that the trust between you and your customers that has, you know, that has to come back to just hard work, great morals in every single person that works there. Tell me, take, take us through what, how do you find the perfect fit when you are hiring? Because the standards that are set are so high for good reason. You know, what's that like? Great, Mary, that's a great question. How do you find the perfect fit when you're hiring? It's a really, really great question. Sometimes the easy answer in hiring is find a person whose skills matches what you're looking for. In our instance, we hired more for personality, uh, shared with the prospective hire a lot about our culture and our way of doing things, um, shared examples on, on guest issues and how we respond. Talk to them th about them being empowered uh, to adjust a room rate, to comp a room. Will they be asked about what happened and why? Absolutely. But will they be criticized for making a decision that they are empowered to do and feel is the right thing to do at that moment, absolutely, regardless of how long they've been with us. And when you can always train the skills, but the personality is hard to train. We did a lot of that. We tried to reward people that had been with us for a while. 
um, and use their stories as an example. We have team members that have been with us for 10, 15, 20 years. Some of them have been single parents who have you know, significantly improved their lot in life by participating in our 401, our, our, we have a plan for gym memberships, our health insurance, um, people who've had challenging backgrounds in terms of having had time incarcerated um, because of you know, prior mistakes um, and also invested a lot in these people. And what that does, in addition to hiring for personalities, when you have stories of success, you know, look at so-and-so, she was a housekeeper and a single mom. And now look at her now, she's a vice president. She has a 401 that's substantial. She owns her own home. She's driving a nice vehicle. And sharing that, those stories are really powerful. And sharing it with your prospective hires, sharing it during the interview process, that if you buy into our culture, if you drink our Kool-Aid, look, I have real life stories for you of people that have been with us for 10, 15, over 20 years and their successes. I hope I answered your question. You absolutely did. And I think the retention speaks for itself. When you feel so cared for and also acknowledged and part of an ongoing community, not only because you're in one position, but because your colleagues are making you feel that way. That's some of the best gratitude I think I've personally experienced with places I've worked. And I can only imagine it sounds like it's the exact same for you. Mary, though, one other thing that I didn't mention in that in terms of retention and is organizations, um, you know, the, there's the Asian American Hotel Owners Association, there's the IFA, there's Choice, all the franchisors, they have brand conferences. And uh, we have always been very generous on bringing a lot of people, traveling a lot of people to those events. And it's a great way for them to develop professional skills and networking skills and go to industry events, get education, have fun. You know, they get they, pictures get taken, they're laughing, they're fun. It's in Vegas, it's in DC. And those stories also in those pictures, when they come back and our frontline team members see them, they think, oh, hey, you know, I'm not gonna be a housekeeper forever in an entry level position. There's room for growth here. And by the way, the growth, there's fun to that growth. I'm gonna get to go out. I'm gonna get to visit a city I've never been on before, been to before. I'm gonna get to travel on a plane. I've never been on a plane before. And that, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go to Vegas or wherever. I'm gonna have a little bit of fun. I'm gonna meet people. And when people see those pictures that they come back, when our team members come back from a conference or convention, it also really helps in retention. It's a wonderful, yeah, it's wonderful. You can uh, be able to offer those life experiences at a at a career, and it almost sounds like a family a little bit in some cases. That's fantastic. Tell us, tell us about, um, Azim, one of the things we talk about on, on this program uh, is sort of the intersection of marketing and technology and the franchising business model. When you're talking about the franchising business model and how you got into it, you felt that, you know, they have their systems in place, right? There's marketing systems, there's payroll systems, et cetera. And you can leverage, you can leverage that, um, and then grow that and scale that. So as you think about, I love to approach it both from marketing and then technology and maybe a little bit of both, but 
you know, when you're installing a new system or you're installing a new supplier or vendor, um, what are the things that you typically look for? You're a very busy operator. And um, when you're trying to innovate your current operational processes, some people don't necessarily are able to do that in a proactive way. If it ain't broken, I'm not going to fix it. They'll fix it when it gets broken. Some people will sort of explore new things that will help them get a step up on their competitors, right? Um, with the technology revolution here today, it's unlike anything we've ever seen. Prices have come down. Um, the ability to operate with a nimble team using great tools, whether what, what, for whatever that's powering in your company. Tell us a little bit of that experience, what you look for, where you currently are in terms of your evaluation process. And, you know, when you're seeking new, new technology to help drive your business growth, what do you look for? When we're seeking new technology to drive our business growth, what do we look for? Um, so we, we, we increasingly look for, one, we want to look, look at the vendor who's providing us with the technology, right? We want to know the vendor and just feel like we have a relationship with that vendor. What we've learned from new technologies is that there's always some unanticipated bumps in the road. I remember back in the mid nineties or early nineties as the change in the hotel industry began to accelerate from actual room keys to key cards. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I was in my early twenties or mid twenties then. Um, oh my God, you know, what happens if the system malfunctions and you have all these rooms where no one can get inside? What happens when the key card just doesn't work and a guest is locked out of their room and has a flight to catch it? Some of that happened, but when you have a vendor with whom you have a relationship with, when you have something that the brand has also endorsed, you're going to be able to more readily work through that. So I think that that, that is important. I think that when we look at technology now increasingly, uh, looking at technology so that you can balance technology, especially in the hospitality industry, with the understanding that you can't totally automate hospitality. Right, a robot or a computer or a kiosk can't give that warm or fuzzy or can't say, hey, there's a pizza restaurant around the corner that's really great. So trying to find the right balance between that. Also, when we look at technology, we wanna make sure that it's user-friendly. So our existing team members, our frontline team members are able to use it. They're able to understand it and it doesn't, it's not so complicated where it hurts their psyche. Um, and we have team members where it's gonna take a little, some things they're gonna learn faster and some things sometimes as it relates to technology, it's gonna take a little bit. So simplicity is important, especially as it relates to training and execution of the technology. Uh, we look at other things such as safety, you know, will the technology improve our safety and security of our you know, the, the guest experience. Um, and then we look at the trends, where, where, is, where is this going, right? So we went from door locks and then there were door locks with these RFID chips so you could use your phone to open up the door. And that began to really 
over, over the last several years become increasingly prominent. So as we were change out the door locks, we knew that that was important and it was better to pay more for that than get caught behind that. Similarly with televisions, television's ability to stream and those things were becoming increasingly important. And as we began to change out televisions over the last several years, um, looking at technology as it related to that, that would help us with that. So that's one part of it. Then I think the other part of your question was marketing and use of technology for marketing. Um, that has changed really fast. There was a while eight, nine years ago where these vanity websites were huge. And then, and I don't know a lot about this, but then as Google and the OTAs became more and more engaged in the hospitality space, those vanity websites seemed to lose their efficacy. And then there was this social media aspect of marketing, which continues to be important because you're not only marketing to the consumer, but you're also marketing to prospective team members, to lenders, to prospective new you know, partners, um, equity partners. Um, so there's all that part of the marketing that continues to be important as it relates to social media and as it still relates to websites. So our management company does have a website that we try to keep up and use as a marketing tool. With that part of the marketing, there's a lot of different consumers of that marketing. Yeah, and are you trying to identify that? Do you work, um, do you spend time thinking about how does marketing uh, you know, bring in new guests at most of my objectives? Or do you spend time thinking about how do I continue to build my brand in my ad spend? Or is it sort of a mixture of both? I know in the hospitality industry, there definitely is a cohort of spend that's really focused on direct response and booking rooms. You know, um, that's very transactional in nature, offer related. And then there's the other time, which is really education about the features and benefits, bringing people into the consideration set. So when they're in the mindset and they're ready to stay somewhere that they're traveling to for work, that they have an awareness and understanding of where to go um, versus making that decision without, you know, seeing the brand prior. Do you think about all that or, or kind of certain slices of that? I think about all of it, but where I think about it more the slice I think of most as it relates to what you're asking, Adam, is the local marketing. Um, the brand does it, brands do a great job of like national marketing, right? Stay at Holiday Inn and you know, you're gonna get a free breakfast and free Wi-Fi and a swimming pool or, or stay at a choice, a comfort suites. Brands where I think there's a need is is the local, the backyard marketing, right? There's a new business that's coming into town or someone that's looking to do, especially in this COVID environment, someone that's looking to do a staycation, they don't want to get on a plane, they want to go drive to a place and they're looking at, they want to go someplace within a few hundred miles of their home, they want to drive, they want to plan a trip and they want to visit local area attractions that are maybe eco-touristy and outdoorsy. And I think about that a lot as to how that segment of consumer gets gets targeted um and i and i think that there is there there is opportunity there i mean if i don't know about ocala ocala is a great place to come do a staycation if you're looking for ecotourism outdoor stuff but 
how am I going to know that living three hours or four hours or seven hours or eight hours driving away from here? Um, and if I'm looking for that, how is o Ocala going to get targeted? And, 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 and something also our intention spans continue to get lesser and lesser. I was a year or two ago, I took a class or went to a seminar on writing emails and they said, you know, keep the email within the window pane because once it goes beyond that, you're going to lose lose the person, the reader. Um, how, to, how to hit that consumer who wants to do that type of trip, but also has a limited time span. It doesn't just want to be inundated. Yeah. Adam, did I answer your question? I'm, and I'm No, you did. You totally did. I think um, one of the effective ways to that point is um, the, you know, the concept of omni-channel marketing. Um, what we see a lot of times um, is that franchisors or operators, um, they will, they're so busy with their core business that when it comes to marketing, um, they will have obviously people operating it, but they may really fall in love with one particular channel more than the other. For example, they might put the majority of their budget on one place like Facebook, or they put a lot in Instagram, um, or they might do paid search. And um, you know, to your point, if you're trying to draw in awareness, reach, and consideration and saturate the sort of geo areas that you're, you think your prospective guests are going to come from, like the omni-channel approach is really where the bang for the buck is, where it's always on across social media, paid search, the top 5,000 websites, YouTube video, LinkedIn, all over targeted against the segments of people interested in taking these types of outdoors adventures or staycations. And then of course, targeted to those geo areas, but you've got to be maximum penetration in those areas to take advantage of it. And I think the opportunity is for folks that are, are might be placing all their bets in one place. Um, you know, that can be limiting because, you know, you, I would say when you're coming to local, you want to be everywhere you can and then be understand what defines success for you and then have the channels automatically change or allocate the media, should I say, to what your, your goals are. And that could be booking a room, that could be signing up for your newsletter if you have one, that could be any type of content that you're trying to get the consumer to kind of pull into. So we kind of see omni-channel as really a, a strategy that is um, pretty effective for you know, in hospitality and overall. Mary, anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. And also the fact that I think personally, well, speaking for myself, the idea of going and driving somewhere for a staycation, even before COVID is something that's so exciting. And especially with the emergence of just like, everything is, everything's now back at our fingertips, it feels now that we're kind of getting into a vaccine rollout that I, I think it's this phase of hope we can actually be in. And the idea, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day about how we want to go to a hotel and we want to be pampered and really just get back into something that is an event that kind of reminds you that you can be a home away from home, be with someone that you care about. It's great. And I think when you say that it's local and the idea of marketing in a local environment, when it's such a big brand or such a chain of brands, I think it can be kind of hard to do that sometimes because, you know, I could, if I think about X hotel brand, I'd only have a connotation of it down where I went to school in Newport News, Virginia, but there's so many of them. So how do you, how do you actually appeal each different location 
to each, you know, realistically each different location that it has. And that would be, you know, through different social media platforms. One might work for one location that doesn't for the other. It's omni-channel, it's crazy, but it's doable. And I think it, people are doing a good job of it. I, I would, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not overly familiar with the concept, but absolutely it makes sense to me in terms of what I was saying and how to really hit that. Um, it, it makes absolute and total sense to me. Now, what is your total units now in terms of your, your, your hotels? So we have a total of 20 hotels all across central and north central Florida. And where did it start to click in terms of, was it two or three or 17 or five? Where it, Maybe it hasn't clicked, but where is the click moment when you're like, okay, this is a repeatable business that I can then roll in the same thing I did with my fifth hotel to my sixth hotel. And it's gotten easier at that inflection point. What was that inflection point for you? A great question. Great, great, great question. Initially, you know, we thought several hotels into it that, you know, we were there, it clicked, right? We know how to inspect rooms. We know about the PMS system and all the skills necessary to run a hotel and then had a pretty good idea inherently about, you know, taking care of your team and your product. But at some point, what clicked then broke down as the portfolio got bigger because as the portfolio got bigger, our individual reach got lesser. And then there was pressure on systems that we just hadn't fully built out for a portfolio that size. And the systems began to break down. Um, so then there was another inflection moment for us that these systems aren't working anymore. We also, part of that inflection was, and this was back, I think when we hit about the 10 hotel mark. Also that, you know, we were so big on organic growth, growing your team members from within, but we felt at this second inflection point that we also needed to bring talent in from the outside. Um, that could refresh our, our way of doing business. Um, so there was the second inflection point then. Um, and then I think the third one probably happened in the last few years as the projects, the cost of the hotels began to grow. The deal we closed on today was our first $20 million hotel. And we went from five or six million dollars we went from you know one to two million dollars hotels to five or six which was a lot to seven to eight and then starting in 16 it was you know 15 and 16 million dollars and that attracted a different type of investor it was a different type of guest uh it was a different type of team member too that we were used to so there was a third inflection point at that point in terms of the processes that had we had built out to sharpen them further, and also being more trusting of your leadership team. You know, the, 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 I read once a few years ago that an oak tree is great, but not a lot can grow around it because the oak sucks up a lot of the nutrients and, and it has such a big presence over the yard or the field 
that it doesn't allow that. And we didn't want to be oak trees to our own organization, if that makes sense. I see. We wanted uh, our leaders to grow and play and, and, and make decisions and make the, that we were used to making, right? Hiring a GM, that was us. My brother would do it or I would do it. We were intimately involved. But if we were going to grow, the processes needed to be built out. But those team members then needed to be able to spread their wings. Don't be the oak tree. That's another title. Don't be the oak tree. What what kind of tree are you are you now? If you're not the oak tree, what's the what's the analogy there? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I would like to believe I'm a plant now. Okay, got uh, it. Maybe a crepe myrtle, they bloom right around the summertime and, you know, they look pretty good and then they shed. Um, but not a plant that blooms year round because the business can't center around me or can't center around my brother. It has to, during various seasons, have to be different plants or trees that grow and that bloom during those various seasons um, so that we can have a a garden or a variety of trees that play, you know, a diverse, diverse leadership roles. And hopefully that made sense now. It did. I, I, it totally did. I mean, as founders, you always have that struggle, especially when you're early on letting go of the reins and, um, and uh, not wanting to be anything else than an oak tree to use your analogy. And so you have to find really trustful, smart people, and empower them because what good is hiring smart people if you don't um, you still are going to come in with your opinion and your point of view and you may have to change course on certain things where you see an opportunity to do that but for the majority of the time they they need to be able to run the show because that's how you scale whether you're operating a tech company like we are or you're operating a, hosp a hospitality growing portfolio like you are i think that's a pretty common theme yeah yeah it definitely is and there's been some hard lessons for us, for me, especially in that regard, where I think I know about the business and I think I know about a procurement order or on a new hotel. And my team member, our team member who's been with us for a while is telling me different, but you know, I'm the oak tree and I'm going to decide and I'm going to make that decision. And as you go back and, you know, and, and reflect on the decision, you know, they were right. I wasn't right. Um, and, and their decision was right to the tune of 30, 40, $50,000 in savings. And it humbles your business, humbles you because you think you're the founder and you, you, you think, you know, and you've done a lot to, to achieve that, but it sometimes grows beyond the founder. And, you know, I guess a humbling aspect to that as your business grows. Understood. Mary, what's um, what's the next topic we want to uh, talk a little bit about in terms of the journey, uh, Mr. Yeah. Sanchez? Yeah, I think also the title could be, you know, be be a great myrtle. I I love that. I, I think that's a I think it's a great analogy, and also just the matter of fact where it's obviously I'm not a founder myself. You two are, but the idea that you've worked so hard to nurture and grow something. And I think if you, you know, if we're really going to stretch it to people being branches, you're inviting them because you trust them and then they become a part of exactly what you're doing. Mm. So that is, that is the point. Um, we talked about finding the right fit and making sure to have people that you can trust. What, what does it look like? Um, you know, I know you've done a lot of work in mentorship and I know that's something that you really are passionate about. 
what does it look like for the someone someone who wants to be a mentor what's what's a good thing to look for in a mentor would would you say uh a few things a few i think essential qualities of a mentor um one and i mentioned this earlier in a different context they truly have to love their business more than it might financially love them back and they have to be passionate about their model i think that that would be an important part of a mentor being a mentor Second is, is that I would think it has to be a person who's had life experiences. You can only experience experience, if that makes sense. It's hard to train experience. But when you have a mentor who has experience, they're going to share with you stories that are going to be impactful in your growth. So I think that's number two. Uh, number three I think that's important for a mentor, especially if it's gonna be a long lasting mentor, is that mentor has to be have the humility to recognize at some point he or she may know, the person that they're mentoring, I guess the mentee, might actually become their mentor over time. I like that. And out, and what was, for many years, a mentor-mentee relationship. Azim is the mentor, Mary, you're the mentee. And all of a sudden, after a five, 10, 15 year period, I'm not the mentor anymore. You're the mentor and I'm the mentee and I'm learning from you. And I would, that the humility of being able to transition from that mentor role that a person has done for so many years for, and saying, I'm not, Things have changed. The dynamic has changed here. And I'm now learning more from that person than they are from me. I would think that those three things are really important for a long lasting mentor mentee relationship. Um, super important. And I think all three, as I just think about it right now, are probably equally important. Um, probably equally important. All three. So I think there's we've got a little bit of time left. We, we uh, had a couple of closing remarks and and uh, Mary jump in um, with other thoughts. But um, we talk a lot about uh, the different types of business models available today. We focus on franchising as part of what we do. Um, and there, you know, franchising, as you know, having been in it a good amount of time, it's got its own nuances and, and intricacies that you don't really know about unless you're actually in the business doing it. So, you know, we have folks that are potential uh, uh, business owners that aren't sure if they're going to do it sort of without uh, the franchise model. This is going on at their own and some will do it with the franchise model. And um, so, you know, in the hospitality space, if you're looking to get into it, um, and you're evaluating franchise model, not franchise model, you know, what, what, what are the things that you think would um, help people make that decision that impacted your career and your trajectory? So I think one thing, several things would be important in evaluating a franchise model versus not. Uh, one of those things I think is your location. If you have a destination type of specialized location, that people are gonna to come to regardless. You know, maybe there's an argument that you don't need a franchise, you don't need the national marketing and the national name recognition because your location in and of itself is so unique and specialized that people are gonna come regardless. 
I think the other factors to consider are the value proposition of having a franchise, such as a PMS system, such as brand standards that are consistent across the board, such as a national marketing campaign, such as training programs and initiatives and the networking and knowledge exchange um, that occurs when you are part of a franchise through their plat through their training platforms and conventions and industry events. Um, the other factor I think to consider is is if you're if you're dealing with partners and lenders, what their opinions are. A lender might very well say, you know, a non-franchise model is a lot more risky um, than a franchise model, and it's going to make an impact on the interest you're playing, the loan terms, the amortization period, and it, that's going to impact your cash flow. And if you're raising capital from other people and have equity investors, their voice also matters. They're trusting you with your dollars. For us, the franchise model has worked exceptionally well. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, what are you looking for the most as we as we start to, uh, as the economy starts to um, continue, uh, obviously on an accelerated growth and people are starting to think about traveling again, um, coming to a hotel near you. What do you think, what are you most excited about as you look out in 2021 and beyond? Well, I'm excited for another great American recovery. You know, America is the greatest country in the world. It's the, one of the reasons why it's great, it's resilient. And to see the American consumer back on the road and traveling for business and traveling for leisure and families back, seeing that breakfast room in the morning with, you know, kids on the weekend, the business traveler on, on the weekday, uh, people shaking hands, exchanging ideas, you know, meeting each other at bars, airport bars. <laughs> I'm just excited to see that. That's, I think, America at its best. Um, and America is showing that once again, um, in spite of a, you know, a terrible uh, sickness that was inflicted on the world and on the U.S., it's able to come back and recover and is re resilient. It gives hope. It gives it gives a sense of hope to to the entire world that I am really looking forward to um, and just excited about. I love that. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Just the idea that we always bounce back and we're starting to really be able to navigate the path of like, hey, I see, I kind of see it now, mm. which is fabulous. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Warren Buffett said it don't bet against the United States, right? And as people come back and they travel and they do business and they take vacations, it, it, it proves that point once again, that you don't, you know, whether it's a, Great recession, an oil crisis, uh, a terrible sickness that was visited on us, but don't bet against the United States, right? We always come back. We do. We do. I feel so patriotic now. <laughs> it's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And I, I think it's it's great to hear too when I when I think about hotels and how you said business people during the week and even just breakfast rooms on the weekends, like that is something with the, unfortunately with the COVID-19 pandemic, just being able to be around each other and that sense of community 
you really work hard to make sure it's maintained when we were working from home and, you know, people were in a standstill, rightfully so. But the fact that it, yeah, I miss, I miss the days of going to hotels and going to visit people. And yeah, that's what it's all about. What can we expect from HDG hotels in 2021? Oh yeah. Uh, growth for sure. Portfolio growth, a uh, continued growth of our people both personal in all areas, personally, professionally, and financially, uh, continuing to invest back in the communities, especially in the communities in which we do business by supporting local causes, uh, continuing to stay engaged in the industry uh, through organizations, through the various industry organizations that are out there, continued and even greater engagement with our brands. Part of one of our core values is yes, we can together and even more of yes, we can together. That's a good, that's a great close. We, um, we know how busy you are, Azim. So I pre, we, you know, on behalf of Dularity and Mary and I and the whole team, we really appreciate you spending some time with us, you know, discussing what it takes to enter hospitality, your personal success stories, your team's success stories, uh, the mentor and mentee flip, um, you, you know, your inflection moment on, you know, thinking you can scale and then running into the next hurdle and then scaling that and then running to the next point of inflection. We've, we've, we've heard similar stories from growing operators that are growing more locations. They think they have it figured out and then the next stage hits and they've got to figure that stage out, which can be humbling to your point. Um, but you know, I really enjoy the most of anything we've talked about, both when we talked prior to this and is your just own approach to personal integrity, ethics, and how you operate your operating uh, humbled rhythm, I would say, in terms of how you work with your, your team, the family values that you bring to your business. Um, I can understand that. And uh, just kind of how you approach business and life in general, it's certainly interwoven and refreshing to hear. So really appreciative of the conversation. Adam and Mary, I'm incredibly appreciative of what you all and your team and team Ularity is doing uh, in terms of doing these podcasts. I think it's really neat. And I saw Robert Crisanti's mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, I'm sharing it with our team members. I think it's really neat. Awesome. Well, we, uh, yeah, that one we just released. He's such a, he's got an interesting story as well. And uh, as you, and uh, we look forward to uh, keeping up a relationship with you. And, uh, you know, if we're down in, in Florida, uh, maybe stay, stopping by or staying or staying by. And uh, as our up. guests, we would love that. Okay. And I mean it. Oh, that sounds great. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much for today. And we hope you have a great rest of your Friday. My pleasure. You all do the same. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You already know I'd love to talk shop about what insights were your favorite. For those of you that don't know us yet, Ularity is the world's most efficient local marketing platform. Using machine learning and automation, our state-of-the-art technology simplifies the complex world of developing and executing digital marketing programs, all for a flat and transparent fee. Our technology-based SaaS, Software as a Service, model is a fraction of the cost of traditional vendors. Check us out at eulerity.com, E-U-L-E 
R-I-T-Y.com. And keep an eye out for our next episode of the Darwinian Times Survival of the Nimblest. Stay safe, stay happy, talk soon.